Hey Slay Nation, it's Heather, your host of the So She Slays podcast. I am back with another episode and today's guest is Amadine. She is a model and a psychologist, which I mean, I don't think very many people would, you know, pair those two together, but she is uh, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself before we get into today's topic. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about my journey that got me to be both things. Um, so growing up, I started as a model as a teenager and was really drawn to the weirdest parts of modeling, the high fashion stuff, the things you see on the runway that people never wear in real life. That was always kind of the most interesting parts of modeling to me. So from there, I focused a lot on high fashion. And I think that's a lot of what I'm going to speak to in terms of my experiences in the modeling industry is there are a lot of different parts of modeling. I'm talking about the most judgmental, most critical pieces of the modeling world. And, so, and I was going to say, please elaborate on what that is, because you were on. I mean, you've been on runways. You've been on like the cover of like Harper's Bazaar. So it's like, correct, yeah. what exactly is the most judgmental? Because I don't think that people realize that there's like degrees. Yes, absolutely. So I'll, I'll get there. Let me tell you about my journey a little bit and then I'm happy to come back. To yeah, that yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so as a teenager, I got into the modeling world, got a lot of mixed messages. It was a pretty toxic industry to be a part of. And I actually decided to leave it for a while. I said, you know what, this isn't for, for me. I don't want to be here. This isn't good for my mental health. And then I went to college and I fell in love with psychology. Um, I actually didn't have a brilliant professor who changed my life. It was truly the material itself that was the most interesting to me. And it was my first exposure to psychology. And so from there, I decided I want to make a career out of this. And I wanted to pursue a doctorate in psychology. So I went to grad school. And somewhere along the way, I realized that I didn't want people to take away my love of fashion or art. I didn't want the industry to bring me down. So I wanted to go back to it. And so from there, I actually did. I returned to the modeling world as a graduate student, and now I am a psychologist and a model. And I'm here to talk about both, the both of the hats that I wear, the ways that they're similar, the ways that they're different, they intersect, um, but they're two things that certainly don't sound like they go together. No, not at all. And I'm going to have you answer that question about the degrees of like the most judgmental parts of the modeling mm -hmm. industry. But, but today's topic, we're kind of getting into the nitty gritty of like psychology wise of what goes into the whole modeling aspect behind the scenes of things, uh, whether you are, you know, a well-established model, you're on run on the runway, or you are coming up through the ranks, because I think a lot of people think you just, you know, you got to look pretty, and then you just smile for the camera, and that's not it. Yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of toxicity in oh, absolutely. all of that. Yeah. So um, let's, let's dive deep. For sure. Yeah, I think that Unfortunately, there are a lot of really toxic parts of the industry. I think it is based on how you look. Um, and, you know, there are lots of different parts of the world of modeling. But in high fashion, not everyone fits that look. I think high fashion is a lot. There's a lot of a focus on exclusivity and making certain brands seem desirable. So as opposed to like commercial modeling, that would be, you know, Target, JCPenney, um, major brands that are consumed by everyone, high fashion is more of the designer side of things. 
And because it's such an exclusive world, a lot of that is very judgmental. It's judgmental about kind of every part of the product that could happen. It's about how you look. It's about how you act. It's about your personality on set. It's about the product that's produced. It's about people's bodies and what they look like. And I think there's a lot about the industry that creates this experience that people have being in it that you're never enough. So like mm -hmm. the feedback that I've received and many other models have received is that you're never small enough ever. And in high fashion, that's the thing. You know, there's a certain set amount of sizes that you can be. If you exceed those sizes, there isn't room for you in the industry. And then in the plus side world, that also actually has quite a lot of limitations too. Um, there are its own set of criteria of how you fit. You know, you have to be between X size and X size. You have to be fairly proportional. Um, you have to look a certain way. And then in between those two ranges of sizes, there isn't a lot of room for people. So it's it's very specific in what they're looking for. And it can easily make you feel like you're never enough. Yeah. Why? Why? I mean, why are they looking for certain people? I've never really understood that. Like, I mean, mm. I I think for high fashion, I get to a certain degree because they're just like, this isn't for mass consumption. Like, I'm also like trying to spend as least money as possible on fabric for X, Y, and Z garment. But like, why? Is there other reasons? I don't know. I think it depends on who you ask. I'm sure fashion historians would have a much more complicated, complex answer. Um, from what I've heard, other ideas aside from the ones that you've posed have been things like, because it's how it's always been. You know, there's a bit of like a traditionalism kind of perspective okay. of like, it's always been this way. Um, there certainly has been a lot of racism in the industry in terms of only ever hiring white models and actively excluding people of color. And so it's complicated and I'm not sure there's a simple answer, unfortunately, as to the why. Yeah. Which, so I can only assume that it's the high, high fashion, the like couture that is like the worst when it comes to level of toxicity. That is the impression I get. Yeah. <laughs> from my experiences. <laughs> it's hard because I, I can't speak to like, I haven't also been in the commercial modeling world and has also been in the fitness modeling world. So I can't speak to those worlds. I'm sure there's toxicity everywhere, but as far as I know, it really does seem like lots of criticism and toxicity exists in that like echelon of the modeling world. And I have to ask too, it's like, you're a psychologist. So doesn't it drain you to like be around that? Because as a psychologist, I would assume that like, you're pretty self-aware. And like that constant level of toxicity just like hitting you does I mean does it take it away from like the the luster does it suck you dry? <laughs> yes and no. Um, I think it's it's about finding your why. You know, it's about being in it for whatever your why is. For me, it's about the art. And ultimately, I would love to create change within the industry. I would love to create and promote more inclusivity. And I think if you can find those positive parts of the industry, because they absolutely do exist. It's not just entirely negative. There are a lot of people who want to create art and care about these things. There are a lot of young designers who are actively being very inclusive in the castings that they do for their shows, actively casting girls who are outside of the normal range of sizes or normal body types, or not just having a token person of color model for one runway show. 
So they're out there. It's just finding them. And I think that's what can kind of sustain you over time. What was like, I assume what made you quit was a breaking point, right? You know, um, because you were young. And I mean, there's definitely young girls that are, you know, they may be in commercial or whatever now, but they are, you know, aiming high for the, you know, runway and all that kind of stuff. Because I mean, I would assume that's where a good chunk of money is. No, actually, it's the opposite. (laughs) Really? Um, So you would think there'd be money in the high fashion? It's not. So how people pay the bills is to do commercial work. And high fashion work pays very little. What? Yeah. What is, what is it? Wait, what? (laughs) It's the opposite of what you would think. Why is that? I think people try to get away with the prestige of it you know it's an honor to be on you know this runway you should be lucky that you're here there are a thousand girls that would like to replace you so take it or don't take it and it's so competitive that they're correct there are probably a thousand girls who would be willing to take your place on a runway and do it for free wow so all like the Kendall Jenner's and stuff like that like they're just kind of there doing it I mean because like in a way like even like with the Naomi and all that kind of stuff I would assume that I guess it's like is it mutually beneficial because they got their own fan base too that is so I think if you talk about the like top five or 15 models in the world, they all get paid very well, but it's everyone else. You know, it's mm. the the hardworking models that are there day in and day out that you don't know about. Those are the models who are doing it for little compensation. Wow. So all of their money is made like on commercial campaigns and all that kind of stuff. It's never actually on a runway. I would have never thought that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It definitely feels the opposite of what you would think because it's so exclusive. Oh, that makes me feel some type of way. I'm not going to lie. Cause I'm just like, there's so many little girls that are probably like, that's what I want. And then you get there and they're, and it's just like, wow, they're paying me nothing to like, yeah. be here. I like worked so hard. Exactly. And they just want me to like, be happy that I even like get the chance to do this. Oh my God, how toxic. Well, and I think this exists in many fields. Like I was just reading an article on how apparently this problem that we're describing right now also exists in the college professor world of academia, where unless you're tenured, lots of like affiliate or associate faculty, they have to have some other job that financially supports them because often their job as a professor does not sustain them financially. And it does seem like this is a problem that's actually really widely applicable, not just in the modeling world. You know what? I'm going to agree with you because that even happens with teachers. Like I have friends that are teachers who have like second jobs at a restaurant or a bar or whatever to make ends meet. They're not even um, rolling in the dough in any aspect of it, right? That's just like, I'm going to have a livable wage so that I can, I don't know, go out and eat at like a good restaurant every now and then and not break the bank. Um, So, oh my gosh, I feel like that's a whole nother topic in itself. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) That was a whole nother topic in itself. Mm -hmm. Um, I also want to talk about how like, okay. So we also, we, we know modeling, it's like body image and, you know, comparing yourself to everyone else. 
What are like the top things though that are or are those the top things um, as far as insecurities and, and toxic uh, thoughts and all this kind of stuff that come into play? And how does that affect the younger girls in the industry? Yeah, I think there are, I think this is important to talk about too in that like social media plays such a big role, mm. you know, in terms of like what media are we consuming and where do we see it and where do young girls consume it? And it's mostly through the internet. And I think absolutely it affects our body image. It affects our sense of self-worth. Um, and it's so easy, I think, to scroll social media without important context. So the context I would recommend people keeping in mind, and I think it's very hard for us to do, is everything is constructed. Everything is constructed in the modeling world. Every image you look at, um, every ad you see, lots of the stuff on my Instagram even, it's all constructed. And like, I want to break down how constructed it is, because I think it's very important for people to have this context of you have a, an entire team of people who are like tools that help con contribute to the product. You've got a stylist who picks out what the clothes are ahead of time. And they're looking uniquely at the vision of the project and for you, what's going to look best. And then they put the clothes on you and they tailor it to you. There are clips that you can't see, you know, behind the person being shot so that it looks like it's really personally fit to the person. There's a hair and makeup artist where they do your hair and makeup for hours before the shoot, making you look just right. Um, there's the photographer who knows only to get certain angles of you that are gonna look the most attractive or the most whatever they're trying to accomplish. And then it all gets run through Photoshop at the end of the day. There are hundreds of images from shoots that we produce that don't get picked because we all have weird angles and they only pick the right angles. So there's so much that goes into each image. And I think people miss that when you scroll. It's easy to lose sight of it. Absolutely. Well, and the fact too, that's like, we would constantly remind ourselves like, hey, what we're looking at are highlights. These are, this is not real life. Um, but also too, I, I'm wondering how that then affects the younger girls in the industry that are coming up. Like, what are they taking in? Because not only do they have social media, but they're they're experiencing this firsthand. Right. Yeah, I think as we had kind of talked about before, just the idea of how does it affect our body image? How does it affect our sense of self? And I personally experienced this too, of this feeling of never being enough. You're never small enough. You're never whatever enough, tall enough. Um, curvy enough. It depends on what you're going for or what feedback you get. But I think it's so easy for social media and the modeling industry to contribute to this feeling that people have that they're not enough. They need to be doing more. It's this really impossible standard at the end of the day. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, there's no realistic, you can't get to that realistically. Um, there's no way. And then on top of that too, I mean, we're going to tie this into social media a little bit more and the rise in depression, suicide rates, um, all, all across the board when it comes to, you know, kids in middle school, kids in high school. Um, Absolutely. How, I mean, how do you, as a psychologist, what are your thoughts on all of that? I think social media and I think Photoshop is another good parallel to all of this and that they're tools. And that I don't think they're inherently good or bad, but they certainly have the potential for bad. And so I think there are certain things to keep in mind and certain strategies or techniques that I would have and recommend to kind of be a thoughtful consumer of social media and be really intentional in how we engage with it because of that potential for 
an increase in depression and anxiety and trauma and suicidal thoughts and ways that we feel so alone and disconnected from others when all we're viewing is this like impossible to achieve perfectionistic non-reality what were what would be some of those things that um you you would tell people or you would talk to them about some of the things that they can maybe implement themselves yeah i have like four points the first one would be know it's all constructed know that it's not real like the kardashians don't even look like themselves on social media you know like some of us have the ability to have access to hair and makeup artists some of us have access to surgery to correct our perceived flaws and so there are so many factors that go into how it's not a real image and so really trying to keep that in mind however we can set reminders on your phone set calendar appointments whatever however you need to remind yourself put it on a sticky note on your computer put it as a phone background, whatever works for you, but trying to keep in mind, I am consuming these images and these are the best images that are picked. And there are hundreds that get rejected that people don't pick. Um, another piece of advice I would have would be limit the time that you have on social media. Try to be really intentional. Just like I think it's beneficial for people to do this with Netflix too, where we love to just like doom scroll or we love to scroll on Netflix and kind of mindlessly consume media. And I think it's really important to get away from that mindless consuming and be thoughtful about how we're consuming it. Set a time limit, curate your feed, you know, reject the accounts that make you feel bad about yourself. Don't consume that stuff. It doesn't matter. It's your feed. You get to decide what you want it to do. And then at the end of the day, I think finding balance outside of social media. So trying to be thoughtful about consuming it, curating your feed, limiting yourself, possibly consume it less, but also Go do things that restore you. Go spend time with your friends. Go find movement in some way. Go be with your family. Go do activities you like, but find balance that helps you kind of counteract all of the ways that social media can weigh us down. Oh my gosh. And as a psychologist too, like I feel like we social media gets such a bad rap. Yeah, you know, and it's not just negative. I mean, so she slays goes out of our way to really make sure that our channel is giving something back, whether it's, you know, positivity, relatability. Hey, I messed up. It's okay. You know, that kind of stuff. And mm. people do have power to create, like curate their feet. I curate, I, I curate it. I curate what I look at, um, at least who I follow and what I do. Right. What, what mm -hmm. is interesting though, is that it can go the complete opposite, right? You, since you're cur curating the things that you like and the things that you want to see, right. The algorithm got to love it. Right. right. Feeds into that. Right. Yeah. And then you, then you only get one perspective. And so right. when you are like, and I don't know if you've noticed this. I think you might be the first person that I've talked to about this. Mm -hmm. I, um, I'll scroll through YouTube shorts, reels, TikTok, the things, mm -hmm. right? And I do feel drained afterwards, but I start um, feeling this in impulsive addiction nature. Like, mm -hmm. oh, just like, okay, a few more, a few more, yeah. right? right. And so yeah. that starts getting there. But then what I really started seeing is that, I don't know if the algorithm is trying to practice balance, mm. but now it's starting to show me things that are on the opposite viewpoints of me. Okay. And so I'm like, huh, 
what are you doing here? Algorithm? What is this? Right? Because a lot of my stuff is very feminine, feminist, Mm. uh, girl power, empowerment, that kind of stuff. I mean, like, that's just who I am. So it's like, I like listening to that stuff, but I'm also super spiritual. So I get that kind of stuff too. Mm. And then all of a sudden I'll get like these like super other opposite people who are speaking about Mm. like what women need and what women want and this, this, and this. And I was like, hmm. Like, okay. it's definitely interesting. Has that happened to you? It has, though not through Instagram. I, I'm not a big consumer of TikTok necessarily all the time, but not through those traditional methods. Where I've noticed it is YouTube, actually, where, like, you know, you've got your favorite uh, people you subscribe to. You've got your favorite videos. Maybe they all have themes, and YouTube learns about you through its algorithm other time. And I've noticed these random videos that they suggest. And maybe they throw them into everyone's feed. It's hard to know, but they're opposite of what I would pick. And it's very interesting to notice, like, huh, I didn't pick this. Where did this come from? Right. I started noticing that too. And I was like, okay, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Because depending on what you're what you're consuming, I guess it would just depend on what the opposite of that is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of like it personally. I think it can have some benefits of exposing you to just things that are outside of what you would pick. Whatever you do with it, maybe nothing. Well, exactly. Maybe you don't do anything with it. Maybe you're just like, ah. Um, but I do think it's interesting because we because that's been the argument. is like, okay, we curate our feed. We curate everything or whatever. And in doing so, we curate all the other stuff out. So then we become very narrow-minded um in the way that we think about things yes but it's that is a danger exactly um has that been any I mean like you have clients right so like do they how much does social media come into your conversations with clients like in their pre in their you know worries or their problems or the you know this and the that's somewhat regularly actually yeah I would say You often hear about it more in the beginning when people start therapy where they say, I've seen eight videos and I think I have ADHD, autism, whatever. TikTok's algorithm is very good at funneling you content that you want to see more of. So you end up in the silo of, oh my God, all I'm doing all day is thinking about whether I have ADHD. So it does come up at least initially, but throughout therapy with folks, there certainly is like a You know, I've been watching a lot of TikTok lately, and usually people give a caveat of like, I know I need to take that with a grain of salt. However, I'm worried about X, Y, and Z mental health problem or X, Y, and Z challenge that people have. Can we talk about it? And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it can bring up some really valuable conversations with people about like, well, what about that fits for you? And what about that doesn't fit for you? And like, how do we make sense of this? This also brings me to the topic too, because, um, I learned that like Montana is banning TikTok Mm. and I'm, you know, TikTok is on the cutting board right now, whether it lives or dies. I don't know. Nobody knows. Right. I don't know. Um, Are you gonna, I'm wondering like your thoughts as a psychologist and how, you know, you talk to your clients and you also too, like you're just observing from the outside Mm. what all of this might actually mean right in terms of what do we do with it yeah like in terms of like is it a good thing to start just like 
cutting mm-hmm. all of this stuff like a lot of people too are like oh like I know Utah has like some some laws that are trying to be passed about you know you can't have a a certain I think it is TikTok but it's like you can't be on it if you are a certain under a certain age or something like that and a lot yeah, of people okay. are like you know what you're really isolating me and then a lot of people are like mm, well maybe you'll get your childhood back too hard to know you know, I think there are pros and cons. I'm not sure if there's like an overwhelming slant that it weighs on. I think that's going to be dependent on who you talk to. But I, I don't know. I think part of me wants to appreciate like the freedom of speech aspect of it, right? Of like people are speaking their truth, which, you know, may or may not be correct and may or may not need to be fact-checked, but like people are sharing. And I think there is a beauty in social media in that so many more people are content creators now than ever would have been before. So I do think that encourages some creativity. That's kind of cool. Like everyone's doing a Wes Anderson trend. You know, everyone's their own mini filmmaker. Everyone's their own vlogger. And some people argue that that kind of waters down the product or content because maybe it's taking opportunities away from artists. But I don't think it's bad that more people are being creative. So I do see that as a positive. Yeah. All that it comes with. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely like multiple sides to this argument. But there mm-hmm. is one thing that I have that, you know, you and I kind of talked about a little bit, too. It's like social media is not really going anywhere in the mass, the masses of it all. I mean, like there may be like certain rules and bans and all this kind of stuff, but it's it's not going anywhere. It, it's here. Right. Um, It's it's staying. And there's always going to be this you know, parent who is trying to navigate the up and coming trends and the up and coming, you know, so so uh, cyber bullying and social media standards and I, the I'm not pretty enough thing, which I think, you know, if you have a child now, I mean, my niece is like eight now, but I think she's been on TikTok like for the last two years consuming that stuff. So, and like, she'll be saying things. And I was like, excuse me, where did you hear that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, that is strange. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, uh, what side of TikTok are you on? Yeah. <laughs> so it's one of those things where I'm just like, as parents, and I'm sure maybe you've dealt with some clients who had this question, like, how do I navigate this with my kid? It's constantly mm-hmm. changing. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's really, it it sort of, it reminds me a little bit of how people try to be thoughtful of when they let their kids have access to a smartphone because of all that comes with it, right? Like you have a smartphone, then you can access TikTok whenever you want, as opposed to that being limited in some way. I don't know if eight-year-olds should be on TikTok. I'm not sure about that. I think that's, there's potentially a lot of damage that can Mm -hmm. be done there. And so like, I think, how do we help the youngest generation be thoughtful consumers of media? I think that's an important conversation that people start to think about. Yeah. Because here's, it's like the conscious consumer, right? Um, Can we talk about that a little bit and what exactly you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me, I remember, I feel like whenever 13 reasons why came out, however long ago that was, I remember making a point of watching it, not because it was my own personal taste in media, but because I knew that clients or their parents were, uh, well, I don't know, people were consuming it and it would affect the people I saw in my therapy work. And I remember there were so many conversations happening in the field of psychology at the time of people are going to watch this, whether we want them to or not. 
how do we have conversations about suicide? How do we have conversations about suicidal ideation? How do we let people talk about depression? How do we have those not be taboo topics? What about the thoughts and feelings that come up when people watch this stuff? And I think euphoria is a more modern version of this conversation. How do we be thoughtful yeah, consumers about in- that? That's intense, okay? I, that was not my high school. I yeah. don't know who high school that was, but that was not my high school. <laughs> exactly. And so I think TikTok is just a bigger version of this problem of there's so much being consumed because videos are so short and people are on it for so long. They can be exposed to so many things. And I think it's hard to know how do we have conversations about stuff we don't even know what they're seeing. Oh it's my not gosh. just one thing, right? It's hundreds. Of yes. Things. How do you have conversations about things? Because I think that's parents right now, right? Like, how do I have conversations that, like, I don't even know what they're consuming, and they, and even the kids sometimes don't even know what they're consuming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, okay, let's let's an- let's answer that. Can we answer that? We can try. <laughs> <laughs> How, how do we do that? How do we like, like, I like to leave our audience with something that they can try and practice or think about or even implement. Hmm. How do we do that? Yeah, well, it depends on the age, I think. So if, if we're thinking about the parents out there trying to navigate these conversations, but part of me would wonder about sort of similar to some of my suggestions before, can we limit that? Can that not be something that people have unlimited access to all hours of the day? for kids under a certain age, perhaps. Being thoughtful of when people can access it, I think generally as an adult is a good idea that we're not just constantly zombies into our phone. (laughs) Um, And then I think if we were talking about parents trying to have conversations about this with their kids, I think that would be beneficial in some way. Like, what are you consuming? Are there videos that stand out to you? Are there videos that you have certain feelings about? Like, how do we talk about that? And how do we know that we need to take a lot of this with a grain of salt? Yeah. Maybe just overall conversations about social media too. It's like taking it with a grain of salt and what that actually means. And right. remembering that people are just showing, you know, good stuff. They're not, you know, or highlights or something like that um, to yeah. question and to think and all that kind of stuff as far as critical thinking skills go and, you know, right. um, Media literacy, I think, is the new term for this, too, of being like a media literacy. I love that because I think, too, like when we were growing up, you know, you had your your research papers and your bibliographies and this and that. And like you had to practice citing sources that were credible, knowing what a credible source was, knowing what what, you know, what wasn't a credible source. Not Wikipedia. Um, Exactly. Not <laughs> Wikipedia. Okay. Wikipedia is not a credible source. <laughs> um, I can't remember. Oh gosh. All of the, all of those questions during the, I hated doing bibliographies. Those are such a pain in the butt. It's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand now as a consumer and like consuming all this media, how important that was to be able to understand what was a credible source and what was not a credible source. Um, And I think that's something that's, I don't, I think that's missing today. I do think so. Yeah. Especially because I think there are so many people out there whose careers are to be influencers and they become an authority on certain topics, whether they have the credentials or not is a whole nother conversation, but consuming this media from people who claim to be experts 
who may or may not actually be experts and how people just take that as truth. Take it at face value. I don't think you can take anything at face value. Like very yeah. little. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Okay. I would love to be able to just kind of, um, I want to leave the audience with a little like action item for what they can, they can either do when it comes to, um, stopping these spiraling thoughts when consuming social media. And then Mm -hmm. also, you know, how they might be able to then like open up the conversation with our kids. Yeah, I think, well, spiraling thoughts are challenging in so many different ways. So I'm imagining someone scrolling through Instagram, seeing these perfectly constructed photos or shoots or ads and wishing that they were more than they are in some way. Maybe it triggers lots of self-image thoughts. I think often perspective comes from changing the situation. So there's a there's a saying, and they say, if you can't change your, if you can't move your mind, move your body. And I wonder if that could be a helpful strategy for people of like, if you're noticing you're spiraling, put your phone away, go for a walk, go sit outside, go be in a different room, anything, just go change your environment in some sort of way. And I think that perspective shift can really help us see things differently because we're not in it in the same way. Oh my gosh. Yes. That is, um, I didn't even think about that. Um, But yeah, absolutely. I think more people need to do that. Okay. And then how about opening up the conversation social media wise with their kids? It's hard to know where to start because I would wonder about, do you start with a conversation about what's media literacy? Like, do we start there for the youngest kids probably, as opposed to maybe the teenagers who have some idea of, yeah, I know this person I follow is not a dietitian, but they like to give diet advice, you know, what, like whatever the situation is, but I think it would depend. I feel like my my recommendations would be like a tiered approach based on what age group we're working with. But I think maybe starting with media literacy and if that is less relevant than kind of talking about, you know, how does social media make you feel? Mm. You know, there are positives. There are the videos you share with your friends or you want to show me. But what are the videos that make you not feel so good? And like, how do we talk about that? Oh, I love that. That is so good. Okay, where can people follow you, like stay in touch, all of this stuff? Yeah, Instagram. So um, I can, I don't know if you want to put that in the chat. Go ahead and just say it. Okay, Um, so my Instagram handle is at Amandine Marie. Awesome. Um, And yeah, I mean, thank you so much for kind of like, kind of free falling into this like social media realm with me. I feel like, you know, we definitely talked about some of the stuff that I wanted to talk about with you, but I think we also came across some things that I'm like, huh, that made me think a little differently. (laughs) Cool. I'm so glad. Yeah. It was nice how it evolved over time. Definitely. Well, until next time, Slay Nation, thanks so much for listening. And Amadine, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me.